Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to the Universe Next Door. We are going to be having fun today in the book of Daniel again as we delve into Daniel, diving into Daniel. We're going to have uh, an apologetic slant this time. And of course, we've done this before. It was about a month ago we were explaining that one of the features of the book of Daniel, one of the amazing aspects that is really not that often explored, is the apologetics power the high-octane side of Daniel as evidence for the supernatural reality of the biblical uh, triune God who really exists above space and time, who really is beyond infinity. We were using the phrase infinity and beyond. I think you were saying infinity plus one, Nick Shalna. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I guess you can take infinity and add plus one or plus a billion. But anyway, God exists above the three spatial and one time dimension. And that God who really knows all, he not only knows everything that exists, past, present, and future. He not only knows the very thoughts of our hearts and minds, past, present, future, and every cognitive being, people, angelic beings, even knows the rudimentary thoughts of, of uh, animals. And, of course, that includes my Cocker Spaniel, Darby, who is right now like probably enjoying breakfast at home. But uh, he knows everything about the possible universes, uh, the way the universe could have been if I had decided, for example, to go to, let's say, Yale University, which I I was blessed to receive an uh, admittance letter instead of Princeton University. You know, would I have done this or that? Would I become a medical doctor instead of a Bible professor, apologetics professor, and, you know, working with the C.S. Lewis Society? I, I, I don't know, but God knows. God knows the alternative universes. Every alternative reality And that is really one of the most amazing facts that we really learn from Scripture. And then modern um, philosophy has actually has taken a dive, deep dive into this area of alternative universes. And there's a whole section of philosophy that deals with that. We don't have time to get into that. But God knows in terms of the future, not only the general trend, he knows every nitty gritty detail. And many of those key details that relates to the future of not only individuals as it pertains to salvation history, the fact that Christ is coming back to receive his church to himself in a major event called the rapture. You may have heard of that. The word rapture is not used, but it's referred to as an event in the book of First Thessalonians. It's also uh, there in chapter 4, the end of chapter 4. But it's also referred to, of course, in 1 Corinthians at the end of the chapter 15. But that event is just part of a grander 
perspective of what God has revealed about the future as Christ will be coming back to reign on the earth from the perspective taught uh, here at Trinity College of Florida, where the C.S. Lewis Society has been housed for the last 31 years. Uh, we teach from the perspective uh, here at the College of pre-millennialism. We don't take a stance on the timing of the rapture. So uh, there's a diversity of viewpoints on that. So, but we, uh, we do take the position um, at here, but we, we, we of course have students and, and we've actually had some professors on occasion who teach in, in various departments who are amillennial. Uh, we have, of course, there's many uh, famous evangelical scholars uh, both uh, living today and in, in, in the last several hundred years who are very well known, whose works are very, very important and helpful uh, in various areas of biblical scholarship who are amillennial. So we, we honor their achievements in, in biblical theology. Uh, Louis Burkhoff, of course, is one, one of them. Um, I do not take his you know position on that particular area, but his work in theology is magisterial. In the area of doctrine of salvation so but when you get to prophecy the doctrines of the Christian faith are rooted on prophecy the very gospel the truth of the gospel is rooted in prophecy Isaiah 53 is a staggering it's a shocking it's an exhilarating prophecy that the very creator of the ends of the earth would take that same dive into the murky waters of humanity and become one of us without the sin dimension, without the yuckiness of fallenness, clouding the mind, you know, uh, compromising the character. So Jesus, in his perfection, in his eternal sonship under the Father, became one of us. And that description of the dive into humanity is really, and of course, becoming one of us even in death, the horrific death of a cross, but not only just the pain, the searing, horrible, you know, tearing of the tendons and flesh as they drive those crude nails through the wrists and the feet and the piercing of the flesh of your uh, you know cranial area the top of your skull the the area right of, under the front edge of your scalp there from the impact of those huge thorns that was pain enough but Christ took the pain of our sin the way that the net bible describes Isaiah 53 is, is just wonderful it says God caused our sins to attack him all we like sheep had, had gone off astray. Everyone had turned to his own way. But the Lord caused our sins to attack him. Wow. And because the sins of, the, of mankind, the sins of you and me, uh, were, as it were, given an, a new homing device, and they, that homing device, as it were, on the torpedo came in and attacked him and landed on him, he paid the penalty, and therefore God says, turn to me, repent, and you will receive the gift of eternal life because I've paid for your sins. If you trust in me, if you've received me, Christ says, as the one who died for you and rose again, you will have eternal life. Well, how do you know that that's true? 
How do you know that such a declaration could be true? Well, it rings true because that is not only what's prophesied 700 years before Christ came to the earth in the book of Isaiah, written about 700 B.C., completed maybe 680, okay? So like 100 years before Nebuchadnezzar carted off the last of the captives, you know, uh, the the prophecies about Nebuchadnezzar and even the prophecies of the release of those captives 70 years later under Cyrus, Darius the Mede, but better known as Cyrus, those, prophe- those prophecies were already recorded in the book of Isaiah. So 100 years before Nebuchadnezzar attacked, it was a triple attack, 605, 598, 586, and the last one ruined and destroyed Jerusalem. So, what, what I've been teaching here in, in the school is that Isaiah is key, and Jeremiah, writing a little bit later in the 600s, uh, 630, he completed his writing probably around 580, 575, something like that. But as you cover the writings of Isaiah and Jeremiah, who set, as it were, the nation, as it were, prepared them for captivity, told them that they would be in captivity for 70 years, those prophecies are riveting enough, but when you get into the book of Isaiah, uh, rather the book of Daniel itself, the prophetic detail explodes; it catapults to a whole new level. And so, I would say, apologetics itself explodes or catapults to a new level. So, we are going to be looking now at the book of Daniel, and Daniel, of course, we said was the 12-chapter account, both historical and prophetic, of the servant of the king, originally King Nebuchadnezzar. Later, he served under the reign of some of the kings that followed Nebuchadnezzar. There was a quick succession of um, short-lived kings, and then there was Nabonidus, and then, uh, of course, Belshazzar. Uh, David, uh, rather Daniel's name itself, uh, was Belteshazzar, and that is not to be confused with Belshazzar, who was uh, killed the night that the Persians, the Medo-Persian army, crept under the gates and under the uh, aqueduct entry and took the city virtually without firing in a single uh, arrow. And so we, what we have under that reign that followed uh, Cyrus, better known in the book as Darius the Mede, uh, although he's normally identified as the same individual as uh, the great King Cyrus, the first king uh, of the Medo-Persian Empire. We have an account of the four empires, uh, Babylonian, Medo-Persian, Greece, Grecian, followed uh, the invasion uh, of that whole region by Alexander the Great, who died in 323. He, he finished his conquest just before that, made many of his victories starting in 335 B.C. But anyway, and then under his reign, the four sections of the Grecian Empire lasted for about another 175 years until it was nibbled, nibbled on and, and sequentially conquered by the Roman Empire that was rising at that time. So four empires, Babylonian, Medo-Persian, Grecian, and Roman. Okay, everybody got that class? And so we have those four empires portrayed in chapter 2, 
as sections of a great statue, the head, gold head, the silver upper section, that is the arms and chest, then the bronze, the midsection, uh, right below the arms, uh, the kind of the, the, you know, the chest, and then we have the legs uh, all the way down to the feet with uh, a mixture of iron and clay. That image, that single image, of course, is destroyed by a large rock that is not cut by human hands, and that actually hits the feet it crashes in and destroys the feet and actually destroys the whole image and the rock grows into a mountain which fills the earth and that rock is of course Christ and his kingdom which then we believe you know you could see it spiritually sort of beginning its work already but the political uh, totalistic complete conquest has not happened but will happen at the return of Christ when he destroys the revived Roman Empire. So that image, four sections, is duplicated in chapter 7 of Daniel with four beasts. And so all conservative commentators, including, I would say, both premillennial and amillennial, amillennial uh, interpreters who are of a biblical caste, uh, do not see a future thousand-year reign of Christ. They would say the reign of Christ is right now either through the church or in heaven or some variation thereof. But uh, all conservative commentators do see the same four empires. And that is a massive prediction, uh, adding detail to what is not in the original dream of Nebuchadnezzar. This is actually Daniel's vision. Uh, the first uh, beast, of course, uh, a lion with wings. I don't have time to go into the details. The bear, the second uh, empire, Medo-Persian, chewing on three ribs. We don't know exactly what these details mean. There are all kinds of theories. But uh, the images then progress to a leopard, very fast-moving. That's Alexander the Great conquering the four winds of the whole Middle East area. Uh, four wings, meaning the four parts of his empire divvied up after he died and his uh, kind of uh, drunken party he had in Babylon near ba modern-day Baghdad. And then the fourth beast being almost vicious, wildly uh, just horrific, indescribable in a sense. It is not one animal. It's just a kind of conglomeration of many aspects of wild and dangerous animals. And so that fourth beast, of course, being Rome. Now, when you get to, that's chapter 7, and it's a repeat or an elaboration of chapter 2. That's pretty powerful stuff in itself. So much so that the second century commentator, and Nick, this is where I've been shocked and blessed by this book. Everybody here in our office can see Daniel, uh, commentary by John Walverd. And if you're writing this down, if you're where you can jot uh, either on your uh, smart pad or cell phone or a notepad, W-A-L-V-O-O-R-D, Vord, but it's pronounced Walverd. Uh, he was president of Dallas Seminary when I was a student. Walverd and Dyer, D-Y-E-R, still very, very much active in uh, prophecy studies. Walverd and Dyer have produced a massive, wonderful commentary that brings out these truths. It is the best book available on Daniel. Whether you're a Bible scholar, you're just a student of Scripture, if you're interested in apologetics, 
this is the go-to book. And as they go into the chapters 8, and, and I'll just say the 70 weeks described in chapter 9, it's the best description I've seen anywhere. I'll just say that. If you're interested in understanding the Daniel prophecy pertaining to the tribulation, the one week that is prophesied, the week meaning seven years, but has never been fulfilled because there was a stopping after the 69th week when Christ died, the 70th week, the description in this book is fabulous. And that one week we call the tribulation. And when the peace covenant made by the Antichrist with Israel is, is established, that's when the week will be up and running again and will tick off the remaining seven prophetic years before the eternal kingdom of Christ is established. Now, people may say, well, what is 8 all about? Chapter 8 and chapter 11 are parallel to each other. Why is that? Well, they zoom in on uh, Persia and Greece. Persia, a little bit, you know, the wonderful Persian Empire that treated Israel in a, in a sort of kindly way. I mean, they were not super nice. They were not exactly totally wonderful, but they were a little bit nice. Well, Persia is given a few verses in chapter 8 and a few verses in chapter 11. But what they concentrate on is the action, the military and political action that's going on in Greece after Alexander the Great passes. And this is where if you zoom in, you find that, and I'm just going to spend a few moments in chapter 11. There is an interesting, true tussle where Israel is a puppet state. It has no king. Um, let me just ask you, Nick, did Israel have a king in the time uh, of the building of the, of the temple? Um, you know, after they, they had struggled through the time of the judges, did Israel finally have a king at the time when they were building their temple? Of the first temple? The first temple. Uh, Solomon. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and so who was the king at that time? King Solomon? <laughs> Very good. <laughs> oh, oh, that was a trick question. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was an easy question. <laughs> I try to set him up a little softball here. Okay. And so how long did that line of kings, and I, I'm not going to deal with the northern kings, which were, you know, Jeroboam and then that, the mess up north when they divided the country into two sections, Israel north, Judah in the south. So how long did they have kings, roughly until when? Until they divided? Uh, no, after they divided. How long did the south have kings? Oh, until the exile. Very good. Woohoo! Fist bump. All right. Yes. Okay. I knew you were a Bible Sweating. teacher. I was so nervous. I think you attended Trinity College. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> no wonder you know so much Bible. Okay. So until the captivity. And after the captivity, uh, they, do they get back up and running and have kings? Uh, or do they have a problem in that category? Are you asking? Uh, are they a problem? They have a big problem because they're not allowed to have a king. They can have maybe a governor. Okay. So Joshua comes back and he's sort of in the, in the line of descent but that he can't be a king. They allow him to be a, a governor. <laughs> How are you doing, governor? <laughs> that sounds like I'm from Alabama. Okay, so 
they have leaders, they have rulers, but they don't have kings. Israel is not allowed to have king. Why? They are under the authority of other rulers. And after Alexander the Great dies, again, he has a party, he gets a fever, and, and on the internet I just found out that you can actually see that there's a, a record of how he died over a period of 10 days, struggled with a fever, and then boom, he's gone. His four generals, he had two sons, both of them were either murdered or considered illegitimate, they couldn't inherit a square inch of his empire, huge empire, incredible what he did. So his four generals basically divvied it up. And the two, Seleucus and, uh, and his descendants and uh, that whole side, took the part north of Israel, Syria. We would think of it, that whole land north of Israel now. And then the part south toward Egypt, the Ptolemies. It begins, the word begins with a P-T, so this is kind of a silent P. The, the uh, Ptolemies, but I'm going to make the P silent again, the Ptolemies and the Seleucus line, they are back and forth, back and forth. So from, let's say, 320 down to 160, the time of the horrific Antiochus Epiphanes. Now let me say that. The horrific Antiochus Epiphanes, who is like a forerunner of the Antichrist, he is the forerunner of the Antichrist because he's the most horrific ruler who ever came against the Jews before Christ. Now, back in the time of Daniel, how would they know about a ruler who would be a kind of a prefiguring of Antichrist who would arise 400 years later? No one has a crystal ball. I mean, do you know what's going to happen 30 years from now, Nick Shalna, in no. the presidential elections? I do not. <laughs> I I couldn't even imagine. I mean, I don't even know what's going to happen. I mean, I can maybe take a guess. But if I had to guess who's going to be the governor of Florida, you know, does Ron DeSantis? Oh, actually, we have kind of term limit issues. I have to, <laughs> I have to get on my political book and see what the term limits are here in Florida. Anyway, but who's going to run? I mean, no one has a crystal ball. And, I and you know, crystal balls are, are like a and Ouija boards. Those are all... From the biblical standpoint, illegitimate. God explains in excruciating detail every back and forth movement for 150 years from Alexander the Great right down to the last section before it jumps to the Antichrist. The last section is about 10 verses on Antiochus Epiphanes, the Greek ruler who tries to stamp out the practice of biblical faith, of Torah taught in the Genesis, you know, through Deuteronomy, and the holy worship of the true God, he tries to stamp it out. And then at, in verse 36, okay, chapter 11, verse 36, all of a sudden the record doesn't relate to Antiochus. And all the commentators, including Jerome in the second century, say, this relates to the true Antichrist, who is yet in the future, related to the Rome, the revived Roman Empire. Even the Jews see that that is the true Antichrist, the future, in the end. So what we're going to do uh, next week is we're going to give the rest of the story of the prophetic and apologetics power, the incredible explosion of the truth of the Creator in the book of Daniel. See you back here next week.
on The Universe Next Door. Welcome to the world of scientific discovery. I'm Jim Huta, and it's been my privilege to practice as a perinatal cardiologist for over 35 years, looking at the fetal heart as it develops in utero before the baby is born. We now know that the fetal heart development is controlled by DNA, but more importantly, there's a whole new code in a new area called epigenetics. Methyl tags, which are the signals or control molecules for the development of the fetal heart. Also, check out the dynamic colored DNA model. This is the only existing model that includes the DNA methylation molecules. You'll see methylation tags which attach to various portions of the DNA in order to control how it uh, does its job. In our website, we hope to expose you to uh, new advances in this area of epigenetics in our epigenetics section. Come and join us today at DNA and Beyond.